John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, good evening, John. Good evening, Todd. How are you? Well, not bad at all. As you can see, I'm dressed a little bit differently than my usual flight safety detectives uh, outfit because I'm on travel in beautiful downtown New York City, not too far from Times Square. In fact, it's like a half block away from where I am now. But in spite of all the Christmas shopping going on, all the glitz and glitter, this is far more attractive to me tonight. And specifically, we're going to talk about a, an unfortunately a fatal aircraft accident with a bit of a twist. Most of our discussions of this kind of accident, which is, which is with a Cessna 172, has been NTSB investigations. We're going to do an investigation that was done by the ATSB, the Australian Transportation Safety Bureau, so we can compare and contrast the way they do things and analyze accidents versus the way the NTSB does. This basic act, the basics of this accident is fairly straightforward. There was a low time pilot, had about 54 hours total, had the, a recreational pilot's license, equivalent to the license we have in the U.S. for recreational pilots, a license that did not require the pilot to have any formal demonstration of capability with autopilot systems. This pilot was doing their first solo autopilot flight they ran into a situation with rising terrain, and due to autopilot confusion, the person got the aircraft into a mistrim condition, and the aircraft crashed, and the person was killed. But beyond that, the issues that you wanted to talk about, Jan, was about how they do this kind of investigation differently from the NTSB. Yes. And just reading the report, you can see that... Uh... They do approach the accident uh, differently, and they've recorded uh, a heck of a lot better than what we've been seeing here in the U.S. lately. So, and, you know, one of the things in, in many, many accidents is that the investigators uncover things that really are not uh, part of the chain of events leading up to the accident. And oftentimes, in fact, the most in the U.S., most of the time, they don't make the report which is a shame because those issues, if they were in the reports, they would get analyzed because all our reports get analyzed by schools like Emory-Riddle and University of North Dakota and Purdue University, the list goes on, uh, to analyze every detail in the accident reports. 
And by leaving some of that non-related to the accident information that was collected has value, we're losing an opportunity to fix some problems before they become uh, a bigger problem than they are. Now, for those of you who have followed our show regularly, you often see us talking about not just the official report, but also publicly available information in what's called the public docket. These are often a lot of supporting information that sometimes is quite relevant to understanding what went on in the accident, but it's not part of the formal report. Compared to the ATSB, um, the NTSB rather, the ATSB does not have a public docket, but what they do do is put a lot more information into the final report. This particular accident report, which is a fairly typical kind of accident that the NTSB reports. If we had a formal report that was five pages long or 10 pages long, that would be a fairly substantial report. This one's about 40 pages long, includes a lot more information than you would get in a typical NTSB report. And although I'm sure they have the equivalent of a public docket out there that's not online, I don't feel the need after having gone through this report to look for more information because as you'll see, as we share the report with you, there's charts, there's graphs, there's photographs, there's detailed analysis that you don't see in an NTSB report. And I'm going to share the screen that with the audience and we'll go through and talk about this. And as you see, this was an event that happened in 19, excuse me, 2015. And it happened in Millbrook, Victoria, which is in south uh, southeastern Australia, and involved a Cessna 172, the same kind of aircraft that's typically used for flight training, not just in the U.S. and around the world. Very similar to the kind of aircraft I'm doing my instrument training in right now. So I was looking at this very keenly because I wanted to pick up some, some pointers about what was going on. And right off the bat, in the beginning, they have a safety summary. What happened, what the ATSB found, and what they have done as a result. And although the NTSB does do this on occasion, you don't see this up front in the report like you do now. My point I made to John earlier is, if I just read the, read the first few pages of the report, I might get a, a lot of insight out of this that might be useful to me in that, oh, I should study up on this. So, you know, hats off to the ATSB for doing it this way. And the table of contents, as you can see, if you're looking at the video version of this, uh, goes through a number of sections about the pilot, about the aircraft, uh, weather situation, recorded information from the what's called the G1000 uh, autopilot, uh, excuse me, um, primary flight display and, and uh, multifunction display. And again, the G1000 system is fairly common throughout uh, general aviation. Uh, safety analysis and the findings. And uh, John, there was some one part of this that you wanted to go to immediately uh, that that really drew your attention. I think that was in the um, toward the safety analysis portion toward the end. Yes, yes, the way they walked right through it. It's and much better, much better way, format than we use here in the U.S. I'm going rather quickly with screen, scrolling through this. Let me scroll through this and point out things that are different from an equivalent NTSB report. Um, although NTSB report does have photographs in it, just like this one does, uh, one of the things I found was, uh, one, they have a detailed table of contents. And although they have a good heading system in the NTSB versions of this kind of accident report, uh, this has a lot more detail as in what is in every section of this. 
as we go further into this, we have more detailed about overview of the maps, uh, recreations of the flight path of the aircraft. And again, this sometimes happens in NTSB reports of general aviation, but not typically. Now, what doesn't happen often in an NTSB report for a GA accent like this is recreating the uh, information from the from from the flight. And let me scroll down to that, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. What we have here is a detailed account, point by point, what was happening in the final phase of the flight with this aircraft. And we even have information from the uh, from the systems itself, from the aircraft. Uh, the altitude, pitch angle, vertical speed, fuel flow, the kind of detail that you might see in an accident involving an airliner with an NTSB report, but not in one involving a general aviation aircraft. And by the way, for those of you who fly aircraft like this, you know that you often get in something like flight very detailed information about the flight path of the aircraft. And if you have uh, a sophisticated aircraft and you download the the uh, engine and aircraft data into your own analysis systems. You can do all sorts of analyses with your aircraft that was difficult or impossible to do with general aviation aircraft 20 or 30 years ago. It used to be only airliners had this kind of information where the pilot later on could go back and say, let me step through my last flight that I did. Let me see where I was altitude and airspeed wise when I was doing this approach, that sort of thing. But again, this accident report is taking advantage of the level of detail that you would have from ADSB uh, information and from onboard information in the aircraft and putting that into the report. You know, the NTSB sometimes will put in a piece of that information, but they don't they don't ever give you the detail that these guys are giving you. Now, could that be a product of of uh, a, a much lighter workload on the part of Australia? I you know I don't know their numbers. I know that Canada as like 10% of the aviation, level of aviation that we do, so that they have a much lower workload. Uh, I don't know what Australia is. Given how big the company, the country is, it may very well be that they have a much larger uh, if uh, airplane inventory, general aviation inventory, because there's a lot of places in Australia that do not have any kind of air service. So... And uh, to any, any uh, my apologies to our Australian friends if I get some data wrong, but the Australian continent is roughly as big as the lower 48 or the continental U.S. And the continental U.S. has about 300 million people. Australia has about 10% as many spread over as big of, a, of an area. So uh, aviation is a very uh, a critical part of what happens in Australia, and it's often used in, in ways that uh, more frequently than we do in the States. So I can see the concerns with it, with, with understanding an, an event like this. By the way, this just caught my eye. One of the charts in here, it's uh, figure 16, data from one of the verification flights with application of override force with the autopilot on in the heading pitch mode. When's the last time you remember a verification flight being done to look at what happened in a general aviation accident to compare the verification flight with the actual accident flight? I I don't think I've ever heard that happen. We get it we get it from some of our uh, our people that are pilots that may fly that same kind of airplane, and it will be more or less anecdotal. But uh, actually going out and doing a test, I don't think I've ever heard that. 
Now we were to go down to uh, page 32 of this report, which will be available on the page that has this show. So all of you can see this as well. Um, they talk about, before we get to page 32, they talk about research on automation and general aviation. They reference uh, FAA uh, documentation and research on this, specifically the uh, FAA research paper titled Automation and General Aviation, Two Studies of Pilot Responses to Autopilot Functions. By the way, before we go further, as many of you know, I'm currently getting my instrument rating and going through training for that. So understanding the autopilot, something that's very important for what I'm doing because I want to be able to understand the mode I'm in and make sure that I put it in a mode. It's the mode I expect. And that the airplane performs as I think it should in, the, in, in an automated, in, when it's doing some sort of auto flight. And again, I have to emphasize the level of license that this accident pilot had at the time, Australia did not require that they demonstrate any level of understanding of the autopilot systems. This person was doing their first solo uh, auto flight with uh, this aircraft and probably had some training during uh, the time they got their license. This person got their, uh, their uh, pass their, their flight test about a month before the accident. So I would assume there was some recent training. But the key here is, there was no requirement that they have an understanding of it before getting that license. So going down to uh, page 32. And with only 54 hours in the airplane, I mean, he really has an understanding of the airplane, never mind the automated systems. And uh, it, that's a good point because I remember well how little I knew when I had 54 hours, and I've had many multiples of that since then. But uh, although you can get your license in the United States with about that many of hours, that many hours, and probably even less, I haven't looked at the details, even less if you're getting the recreational pilot license. Still, there's a lot to deal with. The level of sophistication that you would see in a Cessna 172 today with the autopilot systems that they have and the glass cockpit is something that was only available in airliners 30 years ago. Uh, if you wanted to get that sort of training as a general aviation pilot, you'd have to wait until you got a whole lot more hours moved up to a much more sophisticated airplane. That level of sophistication is in your Cessnas and Pipers at the lowest end of the GA market right now. Going to pilot experience training and assessment, like we were talking about before, uh, this pilot was a fairly low time pilot. This pilot did not have to have a demonstrated understanding of autopilot systems. And this section states that a couple of years after this accident, the Australian version of the FAA did change the requirements for that. And uh, it specifically says uh, July 17, the Civil Aviation Authority, CASA, uh, introduced an element to flight examiner's handbook that required pilots to demonstrate knowledge of the autopilot system if fitted to an aircraft being used for a RPL assessment. That's a recreational pilot license assessment. At the time of this writing, which was again, uh, around uh, 2017, 2018, uh, they were in the process of modifying the manual of standards to reflect additional training to support the assessment required by the handbook. Now, let me translate part of that into regular English. You can be out there being a, taking training to be a recreational pilot or private pilot in the United States with an aircraft that has capabilities far more sophisticated than what's needed to get to that level of qualification. If it's in your aircraft, what the Air Australians are saying is, if it's in your aircraft, you have to have a basic knowledge of how it works. Couldn't agree more. Now, I have uh, the 
the luxury of doing a lot of ground training before I get into the airplane, either on my at-home X-plane I have on my laptop or in a fixed base trainer that's sophisticated enough that I can actually put it in my logbook and count some of that toward my requirements for getting my instrument rating. And it's several hours in ground simulators before I ever step into the airplane. And after a flight, especially if I was weak on a subject or I think I didn't do as well as I could, my next section, my next session rather, in the ground-based simulator is to recreate that flight, go through it again, figure out where did I go wrong or where did I get behind the airplane? And that's sort of back and forth. Go out and try and do something, practice on the ground, go out and do it again, do it better. That's my way of slowly but surely getting a level of competence where I can keep myself and everybody around me safe. So how do you recreate the flight? You have a, a way to download it from the airplane or do you have, you know, I know there's devices you carry. A, 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 a Pario has a little uh, recording device that, that uh, standalone using GPS uh, as its source uh, to track your flight and altitudes and speed and all that. Well, I, uh, I do it the cheap way. I do it two ways. A ForeFlight, which is the software I use when I fly, I uh, put a recorder on when I'm flying and it can get my airspeed and altitude as I'm flying. And I can come back later and download it. And with for those on the um, video version of this, you'll see an example of one of my flights where you have a overhead view of the flight path I took. And down below, you see a graph that has both the altitudes and the airspeeds. So there's some of the information I can get from looking at that. And typically, after I fly, I have a very tiny logbook entry because my logbook only has <laughs> basically a line worth of notes I can take. I furiously scribble notes in my notepad right after the flight. When I get home, I download my ForeFlight map. I go to FlightAware, which is my favorite place to go to. They have an equivalent version of that because of the ADS-B signals that are broadcast out and that are recreated by a, a third party. And I look at their map as well as my map. They both have slightly different information. I take my written notes, go through the written notes, go through my foreflight, go through my flight aware and say, okay, let me write this out so that not only do I have a graphic down below I can look at, I have my own narrative of here's what I was trying to do. Here were the specific approaches I was trying to do. Here are the differences I did in those approaches, whether I did a, you know, a direct entry or teardrop entry, et cetera. I have as much in there so that when it comes to diagnosing what I did wrong, what I can do better, I use all that to give myself a picture of what I did. And it's very time consuming, but I can go back six months, a year or so and say, okay, when I did this approach back then, how was I messing up? When I'm doing it now, six months later, Am I messing up in the same way or am I making different kinds of mistakes? By the way, I don't mind making mistakes. Those are learning opportunities. I do mind it when I make the same mistake more than once. When I see that happen, I make an extra effort to uh, you know, practice it on the simulator, practice it, practice it the next time I fly so that that becomes a, uh, a past issue and not a current issue. Seems like a good approach. And uh, it's not the approach I would have taken when I first learned how to fly when I was a teenager because I was a teenager. I've had a few years of experience since, since then, and I don't have the uh, strong desire to rush through it and just get to the level of getting a license. I want to understand what I'm doing. 
and be able to reliably do it without an instructor around and feel comfortable with myself as a pilot. Speaking of which, uh, there is a fairly detailed uh, pilot decision-making, reaction times, and distraction section in this uh, report as well. And uh, they were saying some fairly obvious things. Um, in the context of this accident aircraft, the lack of underpinning knowledge may have led to the inexperienced student pilot unintentionally mishandling the operation of the autopilot. By the way, my personal experience, whenever I mishandle the autopilot, it's unintentional because trust me, my plan is to use the autopilot the way it's supposed to be used. My plan is not to be surprised by what I see. And how do you do that? Uh, again, it's a, a practice sort of thing. It's uh, taking it a small step at a time. For example, I have flown solo using the autopilot in order to uh, uh, control part of my, my flight path. But I only did that after I did it with my instructor. The first time I did it was not going to be alone without an instructor. However, when I'm on the ground simulator, either my desktop one or the one that's the uh, uh, more sophisticated simulator, I'll do things before I do it with the instructor because, in part, I want to practice what I'm doing before we're doing it that next day or later that week. I don't want to be surprised by what I see in the air. I want to be surprised when I'm still on the ground. You know, it's it's uh, interesting to note that we are now in the maintenance arena, now coming out with simulators to accomplish tests on the airplane before the airplane comes in. I just was at a, uh, an event last week and uh, I changed a tire on an Airbus virtually and uh, went through the whole process with them. And they have a whole host of, of tests already loaded into this uh, AI essentially machine that you can go through and, and accomplish a task before you do it. Now it's been slow coming into aviation Back in the early 2000, it was before 9-11, before I actually uh, had a simulator to make a medical uh, stitching a wound. And you put the goggles on and put a pair of gloves on. And I swear to God that it felt like I was pulling the thread, the needle, pushing the needle through the skin, felt the resistance. When you pulled the thread through, you could feel it. Uh, pulling through, it's just amazing. But here it is 20, more than 20 years later, and it's just now starting to filter down into aviation. I mean, I just think about all the mistakes that have been made. I made mistakes as well. It could have been avoided just by having a fast version of it. The one I did was quite slow. It went through every step, so it was slow. But you know what? They could have a version that's meant for uh, more experienced maintenance people and let them breeze through one quickly. And the, the, the amount of, re of rework and problems that would occur after would be greatly diminished. So it's, and I'm sure they're gonna go there. That's the ultimate destination for all this, but it's just taken so much, so long to, to get there. It's just disappointing sometimes. And even if it's out there, it's a question of availability. Now is it, those of you who follow the show now, I did a lot of my flight training in the Boston area. I'm now in Northern California doing flight training. And the availability of the more sophisticated simulators I talked about, much greater in Northern California than where I was in Boston. 
you would think Boston's a large metropolitan area should be easy to come by. But uh, there were only a couple of simulators that were within reasonable driving distance, like 45 minutes or so. And uh, they were not glass cockpit simulators, but steam gauge simulators. Again, good for a lot of things, but not as close to the kind of uh, G-1000 equipped uh, Cessna aircraft I was flying. And now that I'm where I am now, not only are they more plentiful, they're much more available. So I can like you know, call up and, and uh, reserve a spot. Usually I can do so within a day if I need to, or I can reserve it a week out ahead of time. So I know ahead of time, I'll have access to the simulator before the flight and after the flight. So I can practice for the flight coming up. I can diagnose what went wrong after the flight. And that's the way I like to do it now, sort of bookending my actual flight in the aircraft with time in the simulator. And if I can't book the simulator, that's a sophisticated one. I always got my X-plane on my laptop at home where I can do some of the things that I'm trying to, to do. Now, before we go on, I want to draw your attention to another part of the pilot decision-making reaction times and distraction portion of the report. It says, research into distraction also indicated that pilots' attention may be drawn away from the primary task of flying the aircraft by use of visual outside cues. If another secondary task, such as resolving a technical issue or misunderstanding becomes a primary focus. Let me translate that in English. Whatever happens, whatever you do, your first responsibility is to continue to fly the airplane. Not to diagnose the problem and figure out the autopilot system, but to continue to fly the airplane. My personal way of doing things is I'm out there doing something and something is with the, with the autopilot. It's not going the way I want. I simply disconnect the autopilot and fly it without the autopilot. I'll diagnose the problem later. And in this case, this is a person who was coming up with a rising terrain situation. And again, the sequence of events was such where the aircraft was mistrimmed. The basic way that happens is the autopilot is still engaged and you're putting in a manual uh, input and the autopilot is trying to trim the aircraft to, to neutralize that, that manual input. The time it takes to understand that you're fighting the autopilot and disconnecting it might be long enough for you to run headlong into uh, high terrain. And I'm just, in my opinion, if the first response had been disconnect the autopilot, fly the airplane, we might not be looking at this report today. You know, and it's, it's not a problem just for general aviation. Uh, new pilots, we have lots of experienced pilots that, that uh, think that they can play around in flight and troubleshoot problems. And probably the, the, the grossest example that I can come right off the top of my head was that Alaska Airlines accident off the coast of California where he flew up from uh, uh, Mexico, overflew, if my memory is right, overflew 10 airports until he had a serious problem just north of Los Angeles. All that time he was talking to company, uh, flight dispatch and maintenance while they were troubleshooting the problem in flight. And it deteriorated in flight and then failed in flight and killed everybody where he had over an hour and a half of opportunities to land at, you know, San Diego and a whole bunch of airports all the way up the coast, including LA. He overflew LA. And, uh, I mean, get, get to your destination, get to your destination. Uh, you can't do that. 
you have a problem, especially one involving a primary flight control, put it on the ground. Look at it on the ground. You know, it's the safest thing to do. And but there's a lot of accidents in the in the in the database for pilots that just tried to figure it out in flight, tried to get it done. And oh no, the airplane's flying good, but I got this little problem with the flight controls. There's no such thing as a little problem with flight controls. You got you feeling a problem with flight controls, get on the ground. We did a we did an accident on the show with the uh, Mooney that had pieces break off it. That's a perfect example. He, he was into maintenance complaining about his autopilot that the airplane was unstable. It wasn't the autopilot. It was a problem with one of his flight controls. And it just fested and fested. He didn't get it fixed. He didn't get it looked at. The people he talked to about it, because he did the troubleshooting, he said, oh, I have an autopilot issue. Nobody went out and did a physical look at the airplane. If they had, it would have been noticed because it was so obvious. It would have been noticed and the accident wouldn't have happened. So if you pilot out there listening to this, you have mechanical problems in flight, get your butt on the ground, right? especially in GA. You can land at any GA airport, look at your airplane, get somebody to come out and look at your airplane, and then you can leave. You know, it's a little for, different with a for commercial you GA, For you GA pilots out there, which I'm one, uh, you can always make an argument in your head, well, I don't want to do it because of X, Y, or Z usually boils down to inconvenience, time, or money. If I have just dropped off the dog for doggy daycare and I got to pick up the dog by four o'clock and I have an issue, I might think, well, if I land at the nearest airport and diagnose it, I won't be able to pick up my doggy. I'll get yelled at by everybody. I'll have to pay extra fines. I don't mind the fines. But I do mind the dog being upset at me. Great. Take that into account. Assume that things will go slightly wrong. Not hugely wrong, but slightly wrong. Assume you might have a bit of a delay. Assume you might not reach the destination that day. Assume you might want to do three things on your little personal training syllabus, and you can only get one of them done. Don't try and push it to get that last little bit, because you know what? You're going to have another opportunity to fly. And yes, you might have a late fee at the doggy daycare. But hey, take into account that every once in a while, things won't go right, and you'll have extra expenses thrown in. That way, that extra expense or the, you know, the extra time you need at the end of the flight is not going to impact your decision. So when, with respect to my dog, I make sure that my flight ends a couple hours before I have to dog, pick up the dog. When it comes to the syllabus that I'm doing for myself that day, I say to myself, hey, here's the first thing I have to do, second thing, third thing. If I can't do the first thing, I'm turning around. If I get the first thing done and things are slightly squirrely, I'm turning around. Yeah, that's the way it should be, but too many people don't do that. And I'm I'm afraid today with all the new pilots and the problems we see propping up uh, because of so many new pilots and the flight instructor experience level is way down because of the, the more experienced instructors have gone to the airlines, have gone to business flying, because those those two entities paying much more money by are like big vacuum cleaners sucking all the personnel out of every general aviation corner that they can. The shortage for pilots and mechanics is not going to subside for a little while. So it's going to be a, a challenging time for everybody in aviation. And one last point to you aspiring uh, pilots out there, whatever level, level you're going at, 
if you're aspiring to get to a certain level of certification, you can look in the regs and say, oh, the minimum requirements for doing this is X. You can say to yourself, I'm going to try as much as I can to get the minimum and be competent because I don't want to spend any more money than I have to. Well, here's the reality. Some of you will get to the minimum and be certified. Most of you probably won't. So uh, factor in the fact that it's going to cost you more than you would like it to cost and uh, deal with it however you have to deal with it. Yeah. You might have Flying to take a test over. You might have to take a test over. You might fail a flight exam. Those things happen. Doesn't mean you're an incompetent pilot. Doesn't mean you can't learn. It just means that you might have to take that over again. It takes a little bit more time. Takes a little bit more money. Look at the long game. Hopefully, you'll be flying for decades. Don't end your flying career before you have to. Well, sure. now, that, now that we have talked about the Australian's way of doing business, what's your biggest takeaway from this version of an accident report versus what you have seen and experienced doing GA reports, GA investigations as a board member? Well, look, like you said, the very first thing is the big issues are right on the first page. All the safety issues are right on the first page. You don't have to dig through and try to find them. And, you know, uh, I'll reference some of the reports that we've had, and we get into the findings and the probable cause, and it will say something in there, you know, a fact. And we go back and report, and there's nothing in there. You know, so it's obviously they had it someplace, but it didn't make the written report. So that doesn't make them people feel very comfortable about the, the report that they're reading. So you need to make sure whatever recommendations or discussions that you have in the report, there's backup material within the report for those. You know, and, and I like the fact the Australians put it all in one place. You know, so the NTSB has a public docket that contains a lot of additional material over and above what we've been reading in accident reports. You know, today, back in the day, when you had to print all that stuff, that was cumbersome. But today, with digital, they could put the entire docket on the on the uh, online. You know, and the first thing I'm going to guarantee you, the first thing someone's going to say is, "Oh, that, that takes a lot of storage." We're already storing it at the NTSB. It's already on the computer. It's in the data system. Just modify how you access it so you get it all at once instead of having it sitting in the background and you have to go make a second trip in there to, to find it and extract it. Just put it all in the report like the Australians did. And uh, you made me flash back to my very first personal computer. This was back in the mid-80s. I was in graduate school, and my wife and I were both in graduate school. We pulled our money together and bought a $1,500 IBM XT clone. Before then, I had a desktop that used two five and a quarter inch floppy disks, 360 kilobytes each. This new system we got had a 20 megabyte, 20 megabyte hard drive. And I said to myself as I started up, wow, 20 megabytes, I'll never fill this up. Fast forward to today, one of these shows that we uh, you know, put into a video and upload to YouTube, it might have, I don't know, 500 megabytes in it. So yeah, we have space to put all the stuff in there. You have space to put all the stuff in there. If you see a report, download it. By the way, I might as well go into my second to last word. The reason I picked this report, and I picked other reports from other organizations, specifically I picked Cessna 172 reports that were, you know, glass cockpit G1000 aircraft, because that's what I'm flying. 
I wanted to learn something from how they did things so I can apply it to what I'm doing in flight. But those of you out there who are aspiring pilots, current pilots, maintenance professionals, air traffic controllers, whatever, you can look at the NTSB, the equivalent in Australia, UK, and Canada, all in English language. Look for reports about things you work with. Look for reports about things you fly. Check them out. You might learn a thing or two. Yes. And shall we go to right, right to the end? Let's go right to the end. All right. So having the last word, I'll continue my preaching. If you're going to go flying, pre-plan, pre-plan, pre-plan. Before you leave the house, look at everything. Call the hotel. Look at everything. When you get to the airport, do it all again. Do it separately. Don't just look at what you've already done. Do it separately in case there was mistakes the first time. And then when you get out to the airplane, do a good pre-flight. We still find accidents with lousy pre-flights in them. Things that, and especially things that weren't part of the probable cause, but because you're looking through it, you see that there's issues that they should have picked up on a pre-flight. And after you get in the air, put the head on a swivel. Just last week, I, I had a long conversation with uh, some very senior uh, flight instructors, and they were sharing horror stories with me, with students that have soloed, and they're flying around the patent, building time, not looking out the, the cockpit, just, they're not busting altitudes, but they're busting space. You know, so they're, they're very conscious of their altitude, but they're drifting far and, far and wide and not looking around to see what's what else is near them. And, uh, you know, that's crazy. Put that head on a swivel. Hey, you, want, you don't want to have your own accident, but you don't want to have somebody else's accident either. They're in the, in the similar airspace. Make sure you know who's around you. You know, it's just like driving your car and you see the guy in front of you drifting lane to lane. You don't want to pull up beside him. You want to either stay behind him or get in front of him, but not stay beside him because if he's playing a drifting game, it's only a matter of time before something's going to happen. So please, please pay attention out there and fly safely. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.